Today I want to talk about uh, time and uh, space. That sounds deep, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't mean it in that deep way. Time and space uh, with regards to Qigong and meditation practice and, and Chinese medicine. So I'm, I'm not talking some great existential sci-fi type thing. I'm literally meaning uh, time as in, I couldn't help looking at my watch when I said that then. Time as in what time you should practice, because that's one of the most asked questions. Like, is there a benefit to practicing at midnight? Should I get up at 3.30 in the morning to do my practice? Um, should I practice at noon? Those kind of things. Those kind of questions come up all the time. I, 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 I even received, I think I've received three questions on that this week alone you know like I, I get a lot of questions i get a lot of questions on uh, social media and YouTube, well, youtube is social media isn't it and emails and 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 through the school and i, I don't have time to answer any of them hardly any there's, there's so many of the damn things i wish i did but there's too many but but certain themes keep coming up and, and one theme is time like when should i practice what time should i practice uh, there's the other question with time how long should i practice is it, is it better to do a great big four-hour training session or should I do 30-minute ones over the course of the day and how many hours do I need to do in order to become godlike in my skill level or whatever. There's those kind of questions all the time and maybe I'll explore those a little bit. With regards to space, you have um, you know, beneficial places to practice and non-beneficial places to practice and I suppose you could say neutral places to practice as well, couldn't you? There's a whole set of teachings around that which is feng shui, obviously has um, masses and masses of teachings around the, the, how a space affects a person living within it. And, and some of it seems a little superstitious these days, and I, I agree, actually. I think it is. I think with regards to feng shui, some feng shui is really good. I think it's very sensible. Um, I think there's a lot of dynamics of understandings of movements of qi within a space. I think feng shui has some brilliant teachings with regards to um, how your mind interacts with space. Um, and then I think it has a lot of bollocks on top. I think it has a lot of superstitious things. I, I go into Southeast Asia, there's a shopping mall I can think of that's designed. It's, it's only feng shui. It's nothing but feng shui, this shopping mall. And it's so overpriced, it's crazy. And you go in and you can buy like a little uh, glass swan or a little glass deer or something that you put in a bit of your house and it'll give you good luck and, and the feng shui consultant will come in and charge you a lot of money to show you where to put the little glass swan. And it's that awful shit cut glass crap that your grandma had. My grandma had loads of it and I associate that kind of stuff with grandmas and Chinese people, this sort of bad um, Chinese glass animals or whatever. And all that, I think all that's nonsense. I really do. But I think all of that built on top and I, I think that's what happens within a tradition. I think that originally things had concepts behind it that had a function, they actually had a purpose. You know, they, they studied the nature of direction and space and, and the way that uh, large bodies of water and mountains and trees, how did these things influence you? Then they studied how does your mind interact with that space, uh, and that's very important. And then gradually, because people are people, more and more layers of superstition got laid on top of it. And I think sometimes you have to kind of extrapolate out that out a little bit and figure out what's useful and what's not. And feng shui definitely suffers with that too much superstition. I, I've seen some um, amazing... Uh, I, I, I remember seeing um, a lady talk on feng shui. Where was that? Maybe that was Kuala Lumpur. I'm not sure. She gave a talk and I, I popped along because it was on while I was there. And um, she was talking about feng shui. Quite an international crowd turn up. It's almost like the Tony Robbins of feng shui it was. 
it was kind of like music when she came on stage and a big screen behind her and all of that. And it felt very motivational. Um, and I got all excited. I thought, whoa, I'm going to be a really successful businessman when she came running on the stage. And then she started talking about where to put your couch, which was <laughs> a bit of an anticlimax after the, the musical intro. Sort of Malaysian version of the only way is up when she came on the stage. But um, she came out. And she started talking about stuff, and some of it was very, very sensible and very, very good. And then it, it started to get a little bit superstitious uh, for my liking, and you know, the glass animals then came out on sale, and she made a tidy little profit from selling the glass animals. So with regards to space for practice, I, I, I like to keep things very, very simple, very, very basic. Um, I don't think you need to study feng shui especially, but I'll, I'll explain some of the kind of concepts, places where you should and shouldn't practice, and, and what this, you know, how this affects you. People get hung up on it, you know. I will say, like, time, when to practice, though, is also, mm, it's both really important and it's also really unimportant at the same time, uh, like, when to practice. Because what I mean by that is, you know, like, when you choose to practice can have an influence upon your training. Times of the day, times of the month, times of the year, they'll vary. But at the same time, they are the least important thing with regards to how much you do or your commitment or your ability to maintain a practice day by day by day but with consistency, you know. So <laughs> when I get these questions of people, if I know the student, I'll answer differently. Because if I got someone to come and ask me this question and they're very, very consistent in their practice and they're training really hard and they're training well and methodical and every day they have their training, then I'll give them an answer on when is a good time to practice. But if someone turns up and they're like, you know, they train once a week and maybe they do half an hour and then they don't really put much effort in and they kind of turn up in the courses but they don't really train in between, then I, I won't bother asking, answering them on time because I kind of feel that rather than worrying about when to practice, they should actually just learn to practice. <laughs> like that should come first. There's a priority, um, and the, you know, with order. So that's what I mean. Time, when to practice, I think is useful for people who actually have a consistent training routine. The other thing with with time is I think that it becomes more complex depending upon how sort of further you are into the internal arts. So if you if you're an absolute beginner, um, I think the only thing you worry about time-wise is morning or, or evening, that's it. It's just really simple, morning or evening, what is best, um, early morning or, or before bed. That really should be your only concern because those two times of the day have an influence upon yin and yang within the body. Um, they, especially the yang regions of the day have a very, very strong um, influence upon your qi levels, um, which I'll explain why in a bit. Um, whereas the yin times of day, the evenings, uh, tend to have a very strong effect upon your um, sort of essence, your, your fuel, your oil. And, and those really at the beginning are really all you should concern yourself with is do I have enough essence to be healthy? Um, and do I have the assistance of qi? Do I am I able to get the qi moving? That's it. That should be your only concern. Because then what happens <coughs> is the more you train after that, the more connected you actually become to time. And I, I don't know if people know that. Excuse me, fidgeting. I'm moving around, by the way, because um, this is a strange couch, because however I sit on it, it's very wide, so I can't get comfortable. So I'm not lounging just to look sleazy. I'm lounging because I, can't, I don't know how to sit. Because if I sit back on the couch, I look like a five-year-old or something. It's a bit strange, so excuse me fidgeting. <coughs> it's, don't judge me. I'm going to sit like this. So <laughs> what happens at the beginning 
is people are quite isolated uh, from time, from the, the rhythms that take place around them. Not everybody, there's some people that are very connected to it. In there. Some people are too connected, aren't they? You get those people who can't function. Oh, Mercury's in retrograde, and consequently I can't possibly function as a human being um, or something like that because of the time. I would say that's a little bit too sensitive, too connected to time. But most people are actually very disconnected from it. And what happens is as you go through the training, as you build more chi, if you like, um, as you open up the channel system, as you open up your connection um, to things, then actually your influence from time and from space becomes a lot stronger. It's like the more chi you have, the stronger the interface. It's, it's the same with your mind and your body, isn't it? Like the mind and the body for a lot of people are pretty disconnected. You know, we only have to see the lack of coordination people have or, or the lack of awareness of what's going on in their body or something like that. Um, but the more chi you build, it's like the chi sits between the mind and the body and there's the translator, there's the interface and all of a sudden that connection goes up. And you see this all the time in Qigong and it's why, you know, <coughs> excuse me, fidgeting again. What a weird couch. What an odd couch. Maybe I prop myself. How's that? Uh, no, that didn't work. So, uh, the more uh, chi you have, actually, like some behaviors that you were getting away with, you don't get away with anymore. So, for example, if you're doing pizzas and burgers and sausages and cake, and I'm just listing off all the fun things now, if you, if you live on those kind of things, but you don't practice qigong, you'll get away with it for a while, especially when you're young, when your metabolism's all right. But the more you practice qigong, actually, the interface uh, goes up, the level of chi increases. So actually those things can be more problematic for you. All of a sudden the pizza and the burger, the sausage, the cake, whatever they were, um, can actually be a lot worse for your health. Just because all of a sudden you're more aware, your, your mind, your body just has all of a sudden like, oh shit, I can feel what these things are doing to me. All of a sudden my connection to what I'm eating is a lot stronger. Um, and that's really where Yang Sheng Fa comes in, life nourishing techniques, because then you have to change those parts of your life. Uh, to make sure you're not poisoning yourself on a daily basis. That's something I don't do very well, actually. I don't take that on board, but I should do. So it's the same with, with time. So at the beginning when people train, all they can normally feel is the negative influence of not working with the morning and the evening well enough. That's basically what it comes down to. They don't even feel the positive benefits of it. They just feel the negative benefits if they get it wrong. That's what normally happens. But then gradually as you get better at the training and you develop more chi, uh, then the interface goes up and then actually it's different. Then you can feel more clearly the different times of day, um, different times of the month, seasonal changes, things. You, you feel it, you feel the influence upon your body and it's hard to put into words. Um, but sometimes you feel like the energy is focused at different parts of the body. And yeah, I know there's that buzzword energy, isn't it? But you know, the nervous system is reading more bioelectrical information at one part of the body, if you want to word it like that, whatever you want to call it. Um, at certain times of the month and at certain times of the day, uh, once you get to that stage, just because the chi has thickened, the infinite in interface has thickened, then time becomes more important. So when I teach beginners, I don't really talk about it, but then gradually as people get further into the training, it becomes more important. So first thing, the mornings and the evenings. Well, we have these two things, right? You might have heard of uh, in Qigong of Chinese medicine called yin and yang. Mm which are two poles, two poles. Um, and okay, it's a philosophical idea, isn't it, of like a duality and uh, these two points that the gray scale of existence 
exist between, but they're also very um, tangible things within the body as well. Yin and yang exist within the body. So uh, yang is not qi. It's a little different. Chinese medicine practitioners listening to this will know when I say yang is not qi. I have to be very careful with my wording or they'll start pulling me apart and then I'll get more downvotes and that. That gets to me, you know. Every downvote is like a little, a little knife in my heart. It really gets to me. So um, I've got to be careful with my wording. So uh, yang is not qi, but the yang time of the day is when your body is more likely to start producing energy or raising qi up within in the body. And this was understood um, within alchemy practice. So it happens anyway, even if you're not an alchemy practitioner, but it generally happens. Um, like I say, what you will feel is you'll feel when it goes wrong more than you feel it go right. And you'll know this anyway, just subconsciously. So what happens in the morning from <coughs> essentially midnight through to noon, there's a raising of um, yang chi. So yang goes up. So from midnight to midday, there's a raising of the yang chi. It, it rises up um, within the two poles. And the sort of peak of yang is midday, yeah, noon, which shouldn't, I mean, that's shouldn't sound that strange, right? And then what happens is from noon down towards midnight again, it, it sinks away. So then by the time it gets to midnight, there's, the, the yang is gone, like there's nothing there. It's, like, it's just depleted. So it's like a little um, curve that comes up towards noon and down towards midnight. Now, <coughs> yin does the opposite. So yin is very, very strong at the midnight, or the influence of yin is very high. It goes down towards noon. Um, so at midday, the yin is, is not there. There's, there's no yin. Um, and then gradually towards midnight, it rises again. So what you have is, if you draw it like this, midnight to midday to midnight would be like this, yeah? Like a curve. And then midnight, hang on, of yang. Yeah, excuse my complicated uh, finger demonstrations. This is midnight. Yang chi rises towards noon and then sinks again towards midnight. Yin is the other way. Midnight sinks towards noon, rises towards midnight. Very confusing, I know. So these two poles are doing this. They're, they're interacting with each other at those different times of the day. Now, this is the first of the sort of natural rhythms that a Qigong practitioner um, should concern themselves with, or a Chinese medicine practitioner. I think Chinese medicine practitioners often don't take into account enough, but they should do. So. If we look at like midnight to noon, the rising up towards noon, uh, what happens is the yang chi increases. So during that time, as we move away from midnight, now there's a, like a little spark of yang. So like one in the morning or something, you know, like a little, uh, the body is starting to produce this energy. The cells are starting to be assisted by the production of yang, according to Chinese medicine. Uh, the dantian is starting to be fueled by it. Even the production of qi from inside of the body is starting to be fueled by it. But then as it gets towards noon, it gets really, really strong. And at the peak of all this, at midday, the body is producing a lot of energy. So it's supposed to be the most energized time of the day. So you have this rising. But at the same time, at midnight towards midday, the yin is not being nourished. Because as soon as I move beyond midnight and the yin starts to fade, then the yin side of the body, the essence is not being supported. The blood in women is not being supported quite so strongly doesn't mean you don't have essence, you don't have blood, they're still there. It's just that the environment is not supporting their generation. So what happens at that time as it starts to fall away? At noon, yin is not being supported at all. So essentially what that means is there is going to be a point when the two cross, isn't there? If you imagine these like two lines where yin is decreasing and yang is increasing, there's going to be a crossover point. And that crossover point is dawn. Okay, just as the sun 
comes over the horizon is when yin and yang are level with each other. They are even at dawn. It's like yang is raising, yin is sinking, sinking away from its peak, and yang is rising from its decline, and they're very, very level with each other. So dawn, when the sun comes over the horizon, that first little bit when you just see the top of the sun is when yin and yang are harmonized, is when they're balanced. But it's not only harmonized, it's also yang starting to creep up. Yeah, so they're harmonized with yang about to come to the fore. So you could say that dawn is the time where we have harmonization, but the chi is increasing. So for this reason, in the early stages for qigong practice, um, the most useful time for somebody to train would be that space from dawn and the few hours afterwards if they wanted to support the body's natural qi production. Now, is that enough to say fill the Dantian or something like this if, if you're into that kind of Neigong where you're trying to build Yang Qi and fill the Dantian up and, and do these really advanced things? No, definitely not. Like it, it's not, definitely not. It's not the be all and end all. It's more to do with actually um, like health and support and nourishment and efficiency of the body's functioning. Because if somebody, say for example, you get a lazy teenager, right, who gets out of bed at what time? Half 11 in the morning, something like that. You know, they sort of crawl out of their pit and face the miserable fucking world because they're a teenager and they hate everything and everybody. But if they're getting out of bed at half 11 all the time, 12 all the time, one in the afternoon all the time, getting up, watching a bit of Jeremy Kyle, whatever people do. Who have, oh no, he's gone now, isn't he? Jeremy Kyle's gone, he got fired for something rotten, I'm not sure, but whatever awful daytime TV show they watch. And they get up at um, that time. Then they're sleeping during the period, or laying in bed during the period when Yang is supposed to be rising. So the result is it creates qi deficiency. Not only does it make them a lethargic, sweaty, smelly mess um, by getting up at that time of the day, laying in their pit, but actually, the, the body actually stops producing qi. It's not supported by the production of qi. So it produces qi deficiency. So it, realistically, in life, what it's going to do is just make someone a bit more lethargic. Um, and if it's not going to be like really critical. But if they do have an underlying qi deficiency already, maybe they have lung qi deficiency or spleen qi deficiency, or, or their kidneys are weak or something like that, the fact that they're not getting up at that time of day means that actually they're just feeding into that pattern because they're not harnessing the natural sort of rhythms of the body. So those conditions will get worse. So anybody who has any kind of deficiency of the body, if they want to support it, use the environment, should be getting up ideally around dawn or an hour or two afterwards. You'll see within um, uh, lots of Chinese medicine books, they'll call that time 6 a.m. So and you can see why, because you've got midnight and then you've got noon, that's 12 and 12, haven't you? And in the middle is six in the morning, you know, the, that sort of time. But it's, it's not 6, it's metaphorical 6, 6 a.m., don't do that. If you're a Chinese medicine practitioner and you use that very strict 6 a.m. is dawn, it's wrong. It, it was a, a metaphorical representative for, sure, for the midpoint energetically between midnight and noon, but that midpoint can move. It, it's, not, it's not even. So say, for example, you live in um, a place that's very, very hot, very, very sunny, and dawn is very, very early. I've been in parts of the world where it's super early, and you, you think, right, I'll get up for the sunrise. You get up and you open the windows, and it's already blazing hot sunshine. You've missed it. Like, whoops, didn't mean to do that. And dawn was at like four in the morning or something crazy. If, your, if the sun comes over the hill at that time, that is your 
6 a.m. That is your metaphorical 6 a.m. At the same time, if you are in a country where there's long, dark days, I'm thinking parts of Scandinavia and things like that, where you get like an hour of sunlight in the middle of the day or something like this, then actually your dawn might be at around 11 a.m., half 10 a.m. or something like this, because that's when the sun comes up. Those parts of the world would actually suit lazy teenagers, wouldn't they? Because they could actually sleep in and then still get up in time to receive the yang chi. So maybe they should keep that in mind. But that time will, will shift anyway. Right. Mm. So for supporting the body, that's what we want. But at, for, for qi production or deficiencies, qi deficiencies within the body. But the same happens in the evening. So basically, when the sun goes down, okay, and it just dips below the skyline, uh, dusk, right, or, or sun, sorry, sunset, sunset, yeah? That time at sunset, when it goes under the, the hill, <coughs> behind the skyline, you can think, you see, I'm thinking of a very specific place, I look at it behind the hill, but when it goes down behind the skyline, that is the time when yang sinks away and yin starts to rise very, very strongly. But yin and yang are harmonized. So it's the opposite of dawn, isn't it? It's opposite of sunrise, it's sunset. So now what happens is the yin is being supported. Um, so your essence is being supported. Your blood is being um, supported. And the yang chi is fading away. So the activity of the body is starting to, to slow down. So basically at sunset, that is a good time for more quiet practice, breathing practice, sitting practice very, very still things if you want to harness that quality. So somebody who has a deficiency of the jing or deficiency of the blood, deficiency of the essence, if they were to practice around sunset, um, go out if you can and, and just be there as the sun disappears below the horizon, it will actually help to nourish and support um, that side of your body's functioning. You don't have to be asleep at sunset because that can be crazy early, but quiet still practice at that time uh, for an hour either side of sunset can be really, really useful for people doing that. So sunrise and sunset are helpful. At the same time, if somebody is awake during the, the peak of yin, which is normally considered to be between 11 at night and 1 in the morning, um, those times, you've got like a two-hour slot there, haven't you? 11 in the, the night to 1 in the morning, and this is literal time. This is literal time. If they're awake during that time, then actually they are not nourishing their yin. So that, that they're not the environmental energies of the night are not tapping in, sort of coordinating with the body's sleep pattern to build yin. So they can become yin deficient or, or blood deficient as well, um, just by the very act of being awake. So if you look at a, a very nocturnal person who sort of sleeps in till half 11, 12, noon, something like that, and then they're awake till four in the morning or something like this, and then they go to sleep. If that's their biorhythm, um, then while they're young, they'll get away with it. But after a while, it will take its toll because they're actually working against environmental energy. So they'll end up qi deficient and yin deficient as well. They'll start to get problems with regards to their body. This confuses people and, and they think, well, when do you see that? Because I've known people who function like that really well and they keep going for years and years and years and they're all right. Well, yeah, they might do. But when you will see it hit them hard is then when they get sick. So when something else has created efficiency in the body, now maybe they've picked up a dash of COVID or something, I don't know, whatever it is, this um, mysterious disease that's spreading around the world and, and exciting conspiracy theorists everywhere. But I can't talk about that in this podcast because we'll get banned, <laughs> seems to be the way. You can't say, uh, there's certain words you can't say, isn't it? I can't say 5G, that'll definitely get us shut down. 
um, switched off weirdly. And uh, what's the other thing? Reptiles, can you mention them? I'm not sure. But if you get one of these diseases, like the COVID type disease or whatever, and, and something starts to affect the health of the spleen or the health of the lungs, and that becomes deficient or your kidneys get wiped out, then the very fact that you have been working for a long time against the natural rhythms of time of the mornings and the evenings, that's when that condition is going to deplete really badly and get really, really, uh, going to progress incredibly fast. Mm. One of the first things in medicine for overall deficiencies was try to get people to coordinate their day um, a little bit better with the rhythms, the natural rhythms um, of the day to make sure they're asleep at the right time and awake at the right time. And yes, I know, there's extremes. What about Scandinavia in the summer when night time is like an hour long? <sighs> well, I don't know. Just use your common sense. <laughs> that's that. I don't know. So that's day and night, right? So do you... Mostly those things are going to be for efficiency of the body's functioning, um, which is you know, helpful to us, um, and certainly. But then what we have is actually some times that were considered prohibitions for practice. You weren't supposed to practice internal work. So dawn, uh, sunrise was really good, sunset was really good. Sunrise to help with the sort of building of yang qi, sunset to help with the nourishment of yin qi and, and things like this, and then blood and the essence, that's great. But noon, lunchtime between actually an hour either side of noon, so 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., was considered a negative time to practice. It was considered the most dangerous time for internal practice. But I would say that's for beginners. Um, by beginners, I mean uh, first 10 years, because I'm very slow <laughs> for, to, to see someone as, as anything more than that. Yeah, first 10 years, you should avoid 11 a.m. to 1, to 1 p.m. Um, for internal practice as much as you can. Um, because what happens 11 a.m. 11 to 1 p.m. noon over that lunchtime period um, is yang chi is at its most, yang is at its peak, a yin is gone, like non-existent around noon. So it was considered an overly yang time of day. So normally that's the description you get and people don't really understand what that means. Well, if yang is that high and yin is down, then, then the body is not being supported by the yin. The yang is not supported by yin. It's like the poles are too far apart. You can think of the yin as like an anchor that holds everything down. So at that time, if you tap into the natural rhythm of the day, what it can do is it can actually make you feel really energized. I've done some great practice sessions between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. and felt brilliant. And afterwards, I come out and it's like I've been speedballing coffee granules or something. I don't know. And I feel fantastic afterwards. And I just want to go take on the world. And maybe not that much, actually. Actually, really, see, I'm just not dozy in the afternoon. Mm. But uh, what happens is you actually get, it's a kind of empty energy. Um, Chinese medicine practitioners know it as empty heat. It can actually support the arising of empty heat. So when the yin is a little bit deficient um, and it produces, the yang is not held in check. So this kind of empty en energy that's not based on any fuel um, starts to build within the body. So it can actually sort of burn you a little bit. It can make the body very, um, well, it can actually make you very dehydrated. It can burn up the fluids in the body. Um, and it can deplete the kidneys a little bit and send too much energy up to the head during that time of day. So is that realistically going to happen to everybody who practices between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m.? No, no, it's not, not really. It's like it'll be mild, it'll be subtle, but some people will be affected more than others. Um, so some people can get problems for it. Um, and even if you don't get problems from it, it's just that it's kind of like training against the natural rhythms of things. You know, you're choosing that time of day that's not awesome for practice. But then I would say 
On the other end of the scale, if you do have a decade's worth of practice behind you, you are really confident with the inside of your body. You, you know you've got lots of yin, you know. The dantian is nice and consolidated. Um, make sure you actually know what that means. That doesn't mean you imagine a sphere in there. But if the dantian is actually really consolidated, the kidneys are really strong. You know you don't suffer with empty heat. You've got lots of moisture in the body. If there's a nice strong foundation of yin and you don't need the support of the environment to help you with that, then actually practice at noon can be really useful because you can suddenly help the body to produce all of this yang chi, this energy within the cells, within the nervous system, within the channels. It can actually help to produce it and a lot more can be produced in the practice. You're getting support at that time. But like I say, the yin is not supported. But if you've practiced for a really long time and you have a really solid foundation of yin, then you'll get away with it. And you'll see that that time of day is actually recommended for some practices, but none of the practices they recommend are beginner's practices, you know? Oh. Then you get the opposite, midnight. So it's just these four times a day, right? Midnight is the opposite of noon. Every day there is a groundbreaking statement, isn't there, on the Scholar Sage podcast. So yeah, midnight is the opposite of noon with regards to the time of day and the qualities. So at midnight, yang is gone, it's down. Like you're not going to produce loads of energy at that time. And yin is really, really high. Yeah? Now yin means the blood and the jing are really, really naturally supported by the environment. So it means at midnight, um, there's a couple of exceptions to do with times of the month and seasons, but generally at midnight, your mind is going to be a lot more calm, okay? a lot more down, a, less, a lot less mental activity. And the blood and the jing is being supported. Now, if you know anything about Chinese medicine theory, you know the spirit is housed within the, the blood. Um, maybe that's a podcast for another day explaining what that actually means. Because that's a very abstract term, isn't it? The spirit is housed in the blood. But actually, it means something um, very specific. And there's a very specific mechanism about why and why that happens, which I'll excite you about, but not get into right now. So if the blood is supported at midnight and, and built up, um, and supported at this time, then it's not going to help produce energy within the body, but it can nourish the spirit really, really strongly. So midnight becomes a very, very uh, strong time for those people who wish to support their practice to move it towards a more spiritual or mental or cognitive side of training. And I don't mean like more thoughts, because that won't happen. Your mind will be quiet, but just something more profound, really. So midnight is that time that is hard to explain, you know, like the more you go towards the Shen, mysticism, the harder it is to put into words. But midnight is that time when some people practice um, and can have profound sort of shifts in their temperament, in their nature, that is mar far more likely to happen at midnight than it is at noon. You ain't going to practice at noon and get a shift in your nature. What you're going to do is practice at noon, probably burn your jing out a little bit, to be perfectly honest, but get a change in the health of your body. Um, dawn, you're going to get a change in the health of your body. But I'd be very surprised if you get up at dawn for practice which is that yang rising stage, and then find there's a big shift in your mind. More it's going to be to do with your physical health. So morning training is about that for me. The evening times, uh, dusk, sunset, midnight, if you've stayed awake to do that training, that's when it's more about the mind, more about the cognition. That's when those kind of transformative things are going to take place. So medical qigong, mornings. Spiritual qigong, evenings. Okay. And you could argue that the more the mind is cultivated, the better for your health it is. So then do that training in the evening. Of course, fine, I get it. But of course, remember that it's largely going to be the spirit that is being worked on if you do it at that time of the day. So here's the contradiction. You should be resting at midnight to build yin, 
but also practicing at midnight is really good for you. I, I, I can't believe the amount of times I've had that question and, and people get really worked up about it. I'll give you a really simple answer. Don't do it every night. There we go, that was easy. Don't do it every night, there's no need. Occasionally, it's all right, you know? And I can't believe how people just get hung up on absolutes. I got students, I shouldn't moan about them because they're probably gonna watch this. Apologies in advance, you frustrating bunch. Who, I say, right, you've got to be asleep by a certain time if you want to build this yin. And then what happens is that they're never awake after that time. Like sometimes just go out and have fun. Go out and see your friends and socialize. Don't do it every night. It's just the majority of times. Um, any rule should be applied about 70 to 80%. For myself, I like to apply rules about 30% of the times, just because um, you should never listen to your own advice. But, you know, generally it's a good rule, but not always. Sometimes go out and do something late at night or you'll turn into a right boring cunt, and that's no good. So, <coughs> midnight is good for that kind of training um, to, uh, you know, to help nourish that, that side of that side of your training, the health of the blood and things like this. This is really good for women as well, especially because blood is very, very dominant in their practice. So midnight practice can actually occasionally, you know, every now and then, can be a lot better even for women, a lot stronger for women than it is for, um, for males. Uh, and often I've seen males benefit very, very much from the early morning, the dawn uh, training, the sunrise uh, type training as well. Definitely a very, very strong effect. That kind of solar energy and moving a yang chi is very, very uh, good for them. Now. If you look at that, that's a very simple model, right, of, of yin and yang within the body. We could apply that to all sorts of other things, right, because there are many other rhythms taking place at different times. And, and sometimes people get over complex about it. They look at the stems and branches of it and they work out the fucking, where is the stars in the sky at this time? And, and is the, the emperor Jen Wu looking down on me? <sighs> Keep it simple, right? Dawn, spring. Noon, summer, yeah? Sunset, dusk, whatever. Autumn, midnight, winter. There you go, really simple. Just compare the time of day to the seasons and you already understand the seasonal switches um, that will also affect your health. So if dawn is like spring, it means during the spring, you're going to have a tendency towards more of the things you would associate with dawn. So a lot more of a production of chi, okay, a lot more of the supporting of that side of the body. So during the spring, and that's not rocket science, is it? That's not hard to figure out, is it? You know, that, um, you know, when things are growing and plants are coming up and sheep are shagging or being born, I can't remember which one it is, I don't know, life is coming around at that time of the year, that it's not that hard to figure out that probably your body is going to match that a little bit and the body is going to be energized. So during the spring time, even though dusk and no, dawn and dusk are going to have slightly different qualities. Still, there's going to be a propensity towards chi production during the spring. So it means that dawn is going to be a lot more powerful with regards to the rhythms of how it affects your body during the spring, right? But during the autumn, okay, when everything is naturally declining, autumn is like dusk, yeah? And the chi is, it means the dawn training is not actually going to be as effective. It'll still produce some yang chi, but not as much as it did during the spring. So it's about efficiency. So if I get up at dawn, sunrise, and I want to build that yang chi in the middle of autumn, it'll still happen, but it just won't happen as efficiently as it did during the spring. If I'm going to do dusk training, okay, and I want to
build that yin a little bit and support myself in that way. It's going to be more efficient during the autumn. I can still do it. I can do it during the autumn and get great effects. I can do it during the spring. It will still do that, but not so efficiently. It's because the seasons are obviously working against the time of the day. During the summer, what that's going to be doing is supporting that noon time. So during the summer is going to be the most risky time for beginners to practice between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Uh, because obviously that sort of firing up of yang, that empty heat, is going to be a lot more dominant during the summer. Um, so summertime, beginners definitely should ease away from that. Whereas during the winter, which is the opposite, which is more like midnight, when the yin is naturally supported anyway, you're going to find that uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. is not quite so devastating, not quite so damaging, not quite so risky, because already we're in the opposite time of year from that time of day. So it's about efficiency, you know. Practicing at midnight in the winter, you're going to get the maximum effects. The downside of that, unfortunately, is practicing at midnight at winter is actually most effective outdoors and it's fucking freezing. So make sure you get some really good clothes, wrap up in lots of layers, so that when people are going out uh, overnight, they just see this weird mound of blankets over there in a field and that's you meditating at midnight and in the winter because you don't want to absorb any of that cold or snow or damp or anything. So that's the seasons. See, very, very simple. They just match. It's about efficiency, support in those times of day. And, and you kind of carry that across also in, with regards to your practice. So a lot more active during the spring. Um, for me, I try a lot more chi building during the spring is a lot easier. Um, so if I'm trying to produce more energy in the body, spring and summer is going to be easy. Producing energy in the body during the winter is very, very difficult. So what I will do is I will try to fashion my training around that because I take the long game, the long view with what I do. So if I have managed to produce a lot of energy during the spring, during the summer, often that will ride me through for the autumn and the winter. So I can focus very much on the stillness practices um, during those times of, times of the year because I know that's going to support my practice. doesn't mean I don't do both at all times of the year, but my leaning, you know, I will emphasize one part of the training that matches the seasons a little bit more. But at the same time, if I had a really shit spring or summer, maybe everything was going wrong. Like this spring or summer, isn't it? <laughs> if you're all fucking defeated because you can't set foot outside the door without wearing a ninja mask or something like that, and it's getting to you, then that's going to deplete the summer, the chi during that time of the year. So then during the winter, what's going to happen um, is your health is going to suffer. And in fact, that's something you're going to see, isn't it? People that have been very depressed at this time of year, because what is it now? May, isn't it? I don't fucking know. And the camera's not going to answer. Don't know why I'm asking you. You can write in the comments underneath so I know what, where I am and what month it is. But it, this year, time of the year, people are getting really depressed because of the lockdown and the cheer's not being produced because the mind is down and life's gloomy and miserable and it's the Armageddon and the four horsemen of the apocalypse could arrive at any second. So that's getting to people. So then what happens when winter arises is none of those reserves are there. So what will happen is people's health will fail massively in the winter. That's really miserable. I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to say that. There is the potential for people's health to fail in the winter because of the depression they felt during the spring. So what happens if someone's a Qigong practitioner is they could counter that as best they can by really embracing the, the dawn, the, the sunrise during the autumn months to try to produce that chi. It's like they're trying to find the spring of each day during the autumn and winter to probably produce that energy. Is it going to be really efficient? Not amazingly, because as you know, the seasons are working against the day. Um, but you can only do what you can do, and that's the best you've got. And it's like a little sort of little 
a little sort of glimpse of springtime in there that you can kind of grasp onto. And if you think like that, and if you think quite flexibly with the season and the days and energy production and nourishment of yin and blood, you're already doing all right with time-based practice. You don't, for regards to Qigong, that's kind of the basis of it. That's the majority of it, right? That, that's, that's it. Like there are more things around that, um, more complex things. But if, if you already have that in mind, that's good, man. That's already like a, a really good basis for your practice. Whoa. Then we've got a third rhythm. The moon, fucking moon. So the moon is like another seasonal thing that takes place. So what do you have? You have yin and yang over the course of a day, right? That's your uh, midnight, sunrise, noon, sunset. There's a day. Then you've got over the course of a year, there's your spring, summer, autumn, winter. Then you've got a course of over a month. That's really the lunar cycle. But the lunar cycle is weird. It's very, very strange. I've always thought the lunar cycle was kind of cool and kind of strange. <coughs> Because the lunar cycle matches that rising of yin and yang, but flips it. <laughs> it reverses it uh, in a really strange way, because the moon is a strange beast. Yeah, it's a very, very odd thing. There's a lot of weird facts around the moon, isn't it, about how we always see the same side of it. I always think that's weird, and it's exactly the same size as the sun, which is why we get a lunar eclipse. It means distance-wise, to do with laws of perspective, it must be placed at exactly the right place so that in your vision it totally covers the sun. That's weird. If that's not, that's proof of one of the two things, isn't it? That's proof of either like some kind of supreme consciousness that created the universe or the Illuminati. One or the other, I'll let you decide. I'll go with the supreme consciousness personally, but each to their own. So the, the moon uh, has this influence also upon the body but it does the opposite of the season. So what do I mean by that? So we could say that, um, we could say that full moon is like lunchtime, noon, isn't it? That's like the peak. So noon is when the yang is at its most, and the full moon is, is the equivalent of that. So that time of the month, it's risen. The dark moon, when you can't, you know, it's all covered up and there's no light, the dark moon, just about to turn into the new moon, is the equivalent of midnight. It's like the monthly midnight when everything is low. So you can kind of figure that out. And then as you've got a waxing moon, that's kind of the movement from midnight to noon. A waning moon is the movement from noon to midnight, right? So things are rising up towards the full moon and sinking down towards the dark moon. But the reason I say it's flipped is because it's not the yang chi that it's affecting, unfortunately. So it's not like chi production. It's actually having a much stronger effect upon the blood and upon shen. So this is where it gets complicated, because if the full moon is having a very, very strong effect upon Shen, shouldn't that be yin? So shouldn't it be more like midnight? But the answer is no, it's not, because it's not to do with production of blood, uh, supporting the production of blood like midnight is. It's not like the resting. Actually, the full moon is to do with the hyperactivity of the spirit related to the blood. So you can't think of the moon being used to produce blood like you could at resting at night. You can think it to do with the hyperactivity of the spirit and of the blood. So during the dark, the full moon, sorry, the blood is very, very hyperactive. So it was a place that was used for spiritual practices, spiritual ritual, alchemical practice, things like this was always done with a full moon. So anybody in Lotus Nagon gets really into that. Um, I tell them it's not majorly important, but they get really into it anyway, because, well, people like all that kind of stuff, and that's fine. More power to them. So I, I happen to know that a full moon, there's loads of my students dotted around 
in woods and fields being weird and practicing out underneath the moon and probably raising some eyebrows in the local communities and things. Whereas on the dark moon, the blood is actually very, very um, docile, for want of a better word. There's no hyperactivity of the shen, no hyperactivity of the blood. Now, it's a little different from Western medicine. So in Chinese medicine, that blood is not nourishing the muscles, not nourishing the tendons. So energy is very, very low um, during, the, during the dark moon. Um, and the shen is very, very low. And, and people won't even notice it at the beginning, you know. Uh, you don't notice the lunar cycle because you talk to beginners and, and most of them are like, uh, don't notice it. After they've trained a little while and the chi mechanism is there, they'll feel it. And around the dark moon, I don't keep a track of the moon. Most of my students do um, because they take it more seriously than me, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I never know what time the, the moon is. I never Until the dark moon, then I know. Then I know what time of the, the month it is with regards to the lunar cycle, because I got no energy on that day. It's just like, oh God, lethargic, and the muscles are weak, and my brain can't think. And you know what I do on the dark moon? I do minimal practice, and I go to the cinema. That's it. Fuck, fuck that, I'm not fighting that. Whatever, that's my, that's my day of the month. That's like my period. That's why that is. That's my, my what do you call that? When men have periods now, don't they? Um, millennials. If you're not a millennial, you don't have periods. But I've discovered it. If you're a millennial, then males have periods. And I think it's an empathetic with an emphasis upon pathetic. Wow, maybe that's what empathetic means, an emphasis upon pathetic. No, I don't think, I think that's quite a mean thing to say. Maybe I'll edit that. Maybe not. Yeah, but what they'll do is millennial men will have periods. And I always used to mock them because uh, I sort of hear about this, you know, this sort of new idea that that's the way the world is going and you're discriminatory, discriminatory if you don't, don't agree that men can have periods. But now the dark moon makes me tired <laughs> and takes my spirit away. So I guess I'm as uh, pathetic as those people as well. I also have periods now on the dark moon. I haven't bled yet um, and I don't feel the need to comfort eat or anything. But I do just rest and go to the cinema and just be lazy on those days, you know. And during the full moon, my mind is a lot more um, active, which when I was younger would have been more of an issue because the emotions would be a lot stronger. So on the full moon, lunatics, moon ticks, I suppose, moon people, lunatics, people with mental health problems definitely have a lot more problems around the period of the full moon. Uh, maybe normal people don't. Normal people. And see, there's so many un-PC terms within this show, isn't there? I shouldn't say normal people. You're not abnormal if you have a psychiatric disease. Well, you are, but it's okay. It's no problem. So when the full moon arises and it creates uh, disturbances within the mind of people who are very, very on the edge, which is people with um, mental illness, then it can set people off. So schizophrenic attacks and psychotic breaks can be a lot higher around the, that time of the month. But most people won't notice it. But then if you're a cultivator around the, around the full moon, definitely there is a tendency to want, there's like a, a pull towards doing spiritual practice at that time of the month, um, and uh, especially midnight on a full moon, will become a natural thing, a thing that will guide you into, into practice. That's what you'll want to do. You'll want to, to utilize that energy. And if, if you're starting to get that pull, that, that sort of draw towards practice at that time, then go for it. If the pull is there, do it, that, like, like follow that rhythm, even if you're a millennial. Or, um, you know, no, I'll stop there, that's mean. So, 
that's days, months, years. Okay, the, already there's a, there's a lot of rhythms there, isn't there, before you work anything out. Oh yes, daylight savings. <laughs> daylight savings. Because of course there's a switch, isn't there? Like we move forward a day, an hour, we move back an hour, um, uh, twice in the year. Is that the whole world does that? I don't know. I don't think it does, does it? I, know, I don't know, it must be the whole world. I've got no idea. Everywhere I've ever been does that hour forward, hour back, which I always thought was a bit daft actually. But fair enough, that's what we do. So then the question is, how do you know which is the real midnight if you've moved forward an hour or you've moved back an hour? Do you know what? Like, there's, there's arguments against that, isn't it? Because there's, there's actual, like, real time, like, because it's switched. And then there's psychological time. Go with psychological time. So if the entire planet or the entire country or the entire community believes it to now be midnight, because <laughs> the clock has gone forward an hour, it is now midnight. Like that, that's how it works. The collective consciousness will have more power than you might want to think. And I'm aware that's incredibly hippie-ish and new age for me to say. That's normally my way of seeing things. But there is a massive collective information field. And if the entire of your country now believes it to be midnight, it is midnight. So people might, and, and if the entire of the country now believes that to be 11 p.m. because the time has switched back, it's now 11 p.m. It's just a fact. It's just how it works. Because you could say, oh, yeah, but what about the stars and the planets and things like that? Well, yeah, there is a change. There is a literal thing. But you can't deny the power of mental influence um, upon all of these things. And that's not to say auto-suggestion, because that's what all the naysayers jump straight to. But it isn't just no influence of the mind and auto-suggestion. There's this other thing in, the be <laughs> in between where kind of consciousness has an effect upon reality, an effect upon energy. And if you are focused on that time as midnight, then that's when the results will arise. So I would say with daylight savings, just ignore it. Uh, or Don't ignore it. That's the opposite. Embrace it, rather. And you'll find that maybe on the day the clocks change, you'll be a bit disorientated. But by the time everybody has shifted mentally to that being midnight, that is midnight. Okay, that's what it is. So that's time-based practice. I would advise that if you're trying to match the rhythms in the environment, those are the things you study. And then, you know, use a bit of common sense and make them work for you. You then have all the other stuff, don't you? Uh, like I say, some people take it further and they study stems and branches and um, all that kind of thing. And that's all cool. That's all valid. I think that's a very valid um, study. I think that's great. But it's more medical. Like th those kind of things, stems and branches, are more to do, like that's where they break up every hour. Um, by a series of yin and yang elemental correspondences. Um, and there's like a whole study. It's a big part of old Chinese medicine and uh, feng shui uses it and uh, divination uses it and all that. And that is a very valid practice. But that's more like medical if you want to scrutinize the absolute nitty bitty details of what's going on with regards to energy. With regards to a Qigong practitioner, you don't really need that. Um, unless you want to, if you're interested, do it. But you don't really need it. You, you really should just focus on those yin-yang harmonizations. Extreme yin, extreme yang, um, yin moving into yang, or yin yang moving into yin. That's really what you should focus upon, because that's really what um, is enough for you to, you know, that's realistic for you to work with in your practice. Any more than that becomes a little bit anally retentive with regards to qigong practice. So, that's time. <laughs> How important is it? Well, like I said at the beginning, I think for someone who's very disconnected from the environment, because they don't have a lot of uh, energy within the body, the interface is not there, then the basics of morning and evening are probably enough. 
And I think as people go up and the, actually the cheap production goes up and your awareness of the environment goes up, that's when it becomes more important, um, way more important. If people can just get the yin-yang balance of like getting up and going to sleep at the right time at the beginning, that's great. Um, after that, more refinement will come as you start to feel what's going on inside your body. Then it's like how much do practice? That's the other thing with time, isn't it? Well, for Qigong specifically, because that's what people are normally asking about, binge training does not work. That's what people should understand. Binge training should go. So what I mean by binge training is I do four hours this day, eight hours this day, and then I do fuck all for a week, and I just sit on my ass and play video games or pick my nose or whatever, I don't know. And then I do another four hours, another eight hours. Don't bother, it ain't gonna work. That binge training thing, does, it's, it's not good. It's consistency that the body needs. Because ultimately what people miss with Qigong is, actually they miss it with everything. They miss it with stretching. They miss it with body development. They miss it with everything. Is you can't do anything like that. You can't make a sudden switch. If you've got a stiff back, you can't fix it normally <laughs> with one stretching session. Maybe if you've got an injury, you can pop a bone back in, but you can't change your body. And it's the same with Qigong. You can't change your qi production. So most people would understand that you can't go to the gym, go to the gym really heavy for a day and then don't go for a month and then go again really heavy for a day and don't go for a month and expect your body to change. The only people who do that with the gym are people who are trying to make themselves feel better by pretending they're actually going to the gym and leading a healthy lifestyle. But they're not actually going to transform their body because it's the consistency that is required. Every little step in the right direction changes the body's habits on the inside. With regards to bodybuilding or something, you know, the body will start, the muscles will start growing because they know, oh shit, consistently wants us to do this. This instruction is here. Now that needs applying to Qigong as well. So if I want my body to function more efficiently, um, I need it to produce more qi, I need it to produce more blood, I need to produce more jing, more, more yin, according to what we're talking about here. So those little habits of transformation are going to have to be built into the body for the body to do it. So when I consistently practice every single day, at least six days a week, sometimes I advise people to take a day off, especially if there's people who do a lot of practice, because a day of pure rest can be great. But about six days a week, um, five days at a pinch, you know, with consistent practice is going to build those bodily habits so that your body starts producing that, that qi or nourishing yin or nourishing the blood. And that's what you need to do. So consistent practice, even if it's just like an hour a day, half hour a day, actually, half hour a day is a little bit less, but an hour a day, hour and a half a day, every day is a lot better than an eight hour session followed by nothing for a few days followed by an eight hour session because you're not building habits into your body. In fact, quite the opposite, you're just stressing your body by doing that binge training. I think um, that might sound obvious, but people miss it with Qigong, that ultimately you're not trying to build the exercises, right? You don't want the, the neatest ever bad one gin. Well, some people do, so they can win tournaments. I don't really understand that. You don't want the neatest ever animal frolics. You don't want the neatest ever whatever the fuck you're doing, dragon dalliance, I don't know. Who cares if your exercises are really, you know, aesthetically clean? You're not trying to build that. You're trying to build you. That's it. You're trying to build your own body. You're trying to build your dantian. You're trying to build your channels. You're trying to build your shen, your blood. You're, you're this thing, this messy fucking flesh sack with a spirit in it. That's what you're trying to build. You're trying to develop that. You are the result of your practice. And the exercises you practice are the tools. So in a weird way, what you do is you learn the exercises and you focus on that to build your tools and then you let the tools do the work on you. 
And that's what you're trying to do. And I've met people who've missed that because they have the most beautiful animal frolics that look especially good in the silky nylon static producing Chinese outfits that they use. They look fucking awful, don't they? But they have this nice outfit and they do the nice animal frolics. I had to wear that. Some person in China got me to agree to enter into a tournament and then a demonstration. On the day of the tournament, out came the nylon, luminous pink, silk, flowing suit. I looked like some kind of flowy marshmallow up there on stage um, doing it. With a, it, was, it was a luminous pink nylon whole thing, like baggy, flapped in the wind. And every time it moved, especially around my pubic hair, little static charges were going off like that. It was fucking awful. It was like a shell suit from the 80s without all the padding. And it had a, an orange yin-yang on the back. An orange and pink are an awesome combination. Um, why am I talking about that? I don't know. But anyway, some people will produce the exercises and they put those outfits on. They want to look really neat and that's what they want to do. But they still never actually cultivate anything on the inside because they don't understand that the exercises are to change you. And this is where the consistency of the training comes in. Because if you binge train and exercise, I do eight hours that day, nothing, than, nothing for a week. You can actually make the exercise quite neat because eight hours put into an exercise, you might get the technique really good. But that exercise will never work on your body. It never will. So what happens is then when I consistently train over a period of time, rather than me building the exercise, the exercise builds me. And then those habits are built into your body. And then the chi production and the blood production and the, and the, and the shen building happens to a really high level. So with regards to timing for exercise, I can't really advise you on how much to do, but consistency is very, very um, important. That, that's really the key. I've seen people mess that up, man, and try to binge train and never really get anywhere. I mean, you have, you have periods of binge training because you go on a course, you go on a retreat, but that's because you're learning the exercises, right? And I've seen this for people, right? So within, within Lotus Negong, the school I teach, we have these various things. We have the Dragon Daoyans, we have the Ji Gong, all these different sets, you know? And what happens is each of the sets is designed to carry out a particular function on your body. And I've known people who've come for years, and what they've done is they've, they know all the exercises, they know the Dragon Dance, they know Jimmy and John, they know the whole set. It's like they've collected it, like they've been collecting, um, playing football cards or something, you know what I mean? You used to get in, um, are they in cereal packets? I don't know, but these training cards. So it's like they collect the sets, and then they never actually do the sets. They don't do them. So they've built the tools, and sometimes if you look from the outside, the tools are quite nice. You know, it's like, oh, Dragon Dalian, yeah, that's really neat, because they've done it enough to make the tool neat, and normally they've done it with me on a retreat, and they've done so many hours over that month-long retreat, the tool is nice. But then they haven't gone away and consistently practiced that exercise every day for a period of time, so the effects of that exercise haven't appeared in the body. So you get, the, for example, the Dragon Dalians are spinal exercises. It's really what they're for, the spine. They do other things with the chi of the body, but they're for the spine. So I know people with amazing looking dragon dalians, but with a shit spine. Now that shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> like they've got injuries all through the spine. The spine is like, it does this when they move, you know, and I can almost wince when I hear it. And they've got a little bit of sciatica and a little bit of discomfort, but they know the dragon dalians really well. Now I'll see them year in, year out, still suffering with the spine. And, and I don't know what to say to them, because part of me thinks I should just point out, well, do the dragon dalians. But another part of me thinks that's so fucking obvious that maybe that's a lesson they need to learn for themselves. That if they just went away and consistently did the dragon dalians, not loads, 
just like run through the, this exercise once a day for a period of a few months, three months, four months, five months, there's a consistency. Their spine would be fine. The exercises would mobilize it. And, and I'm aware in this day and age, I'm stepping on, stepping on dodgy ground right there. Because I said, if you do the dragon exercises, your spine will be fine. Now, straight away people go, you can't say anything will cure anything. That's like a rule, isn't it? I'm not allowed to say anything because you could sue me if you did the dragon dying exercises and it didn't fix your spine and then you had to live with the disappointment <laughs> of that and your disappointment was so great you had to blame me because your spine didn't get better. I don't know, the world's mad, isn't it? So when I say the dragon dying will fix your spine, in the majority of cases they will fix your spine. If you've got three vertebrae missing and an old fucking bit of shrapnel in there for when you're in the Second World War or something like that, Maybe it's not going to fix that, you know, but generally they will fix your spine. It's mad, isn't it? I have to do these little um, disclaimers for saying that it fixes something. How about this? The dragon Dalian will fix your spine unless you're an idiot. Yeah, maybe that's a good disclaimer. Idiots who won't fix their spine. But if you know how to work with your body, actually, they can repair it quite well. Feel free to sue me. Mm. Now... The tools then work on the body and the consistency will create the change. So this is really what you understand, want to understand. So with regards to my personal practice, I have consistency. With regards to assisting my body with time, then what I have is the hours of the day and the seasons and the lunar cycle and so on and so on. So that's time <laughs> in a nutshell, nice and easy. And I'm still moving around on this sofa. Is that too casual for a podcast lecture? I think it is, isn't it? But that's okay. So uh, now we have uh, a space, like where to practice. And that's another factor, isn't it? Like where should you practice? And again, I, th I think at the beginning, largely like wherever you practice is better than uh, no practice, you know? So I think that you should worry about where to practice after you have actually established an efficient practice. And I think location, ooh, am I going to disagree with myself? Potentially, I'm going to say it, but I think location is secondary to time unless you do practice somewhere really stupid, like, you know, uh, I don't know, front of a combine harvester or something like that. I don't know. Actually, um, that's weird, actually. We did, have, we, had, um, we did have someone get injured by a combine harvester. Do you know the, the, the combine harvesters, the big threshing machines that drive through the corn and cut it down? You always see it in American movies when they want to show the sort of Midwest, don't they? And uh, near me, there was a big cornfield. And uh, we used to play in it as kids in the, in the sweet corn because it was really high and it was good fun. You could run through and the farm used to get mad because we damaged his crops. Um, and one day, one of the local classes, and this, this is a true story, was a ninja, a ninja school um, under whatever that guy is, Hatsumi, is it in Japan or something? I don't know, it was a ninja school. And I always think ninjutsu is quite funny anyway. Um, mostly because when they train it, often they wear those two-toed slippers um, and a ninja mask, which I think is kind of cool um, and a bit daft. But they were having a stealth weekend, and one of the local ninjas buried himself uh, on the stealth weekend <laughs> in a field and put um, in a little dug a hole, buried himself. I presume the other ninjas were looking for him, I don't know, and covered the hole with crops. And uh, the combine harvester ran over him and killed him, <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh about because that's savage but he died on a stealth weekend. So there's two sides to that. One, his stealth was pretty good. <laughs> the farmer didn't see him. Um, but secondly, 
Yeah, that's an example of a bad place to practice. Like you do need to choose your practice location uh, quite carefully because that's not good. So as long as you're not doing something stupid like that, uh, then, you know, location's all right. But there are some rules for, for Qigong practice. Um, one of these is around uh, large bodies of water. This is one of the main ones. So there is a, an energetic influence of large bodies of water like the ocean, mostly the ocean actually. You can probably get away with big lakes actually. Um, but oceans especially have a pull uh, in towards the ocean, so away from the land. It's like they have a little, um, almost like a purging effect, you know, like they just pull everything out. Even if the tide's coming in, it doesn't make a difference. And I, I always knew this as a kid, but couldn't really uh, feel it, like it wasn't something I was aware of. But the, the more I practiced and the more my chi built, then I could. I mean, I was, I'm not naturally the most sensitive person. I'm a bit like a brick, um, really. So that my sensitivity wasn't an innate thing. Um, it sort of come with, with time. And now, and, and as years went on, and, and now when I'm near the ocean, I can feel that there is a draw. It is true. Like the things they say, there's a pulling of the chi. It's like it just pulls to the surface, uh, makes the skin tingle, um, and things like this, right? So basically, with large bodies of water, you shouldn't face out into the large body of water like the ocean if you are trying to build something. So if you're trying to build qi, build yang, build yin, it doesn't really matter. You do not want to be sat by the ocean because essentially what happened is any extra energy that's produced within the body through your practice or whatever tools you use through your breathing exercises or the dantian gong or whatever will just get pulled out to sea. <laughs> it's like it just gets drawn out. Probably it doesn't pull everything, like not every little bit. It's just the efficiency is reduced. It's almost like some kind of like vacuum that's just drawing it out. So normally what you do is you practice inland away from the, the sea a little bit. But if you are practicing purging exercises where you want something to come out of the body, facing the ocean is fine because actually it will assist. So if you are doing a Tao Yin practice or you have a clearing practice within your system, want to bring this pathogen to the surface, if, you're not if you don't have any deficiencies particularly and you're quite strong, practicing by the ocean can be good because it can actually can assist and it can pull. So sometimes you'll see that blanket rule, don't practice by the ocean, facing the ocean. I think again, it depends on what you're trying to do more than anything else. But you definitely don't practice with your back to the ocean. You do not sit with your back to it because it will drain the kidneys. And this is, um, it actually drains the Ming fire, uh, if you understand what that is with alchemy practice. This is the same with feng shui as well, right? So if somebody has a house that the rear of their house is facing a large body of water, so if your front door, which is basically like the vision of the house, the way the house looks out into the world, if the rear of your house has a, the sea behind it or a lake behind it, which is weird anyway, isn't it? I mean, even if you just think about it, if you picture a cliff with the sea and then a house with its back to the ocean, I don't know about you, but for me, my slightly OCD brain doesn't even like that. And I don't know if it's because I've studied feng shui or just because it's a weird thing, but I don't like the look of that, like the back of the house shouldn't be there. But people who live in houses with that large body of water behind them actually find that their kidneys um, actually start to drain. They age badly um, and their um, immune system is weak and, and they can get bad backs and tinnitus and all that. Just all the things you associate with kidney depletion, definitely low energy levels, just because that large body of water is there. And especially when they're asleep, when they're very susceptible to the effects of it, it draws out of their, draws out of their body. Now, there's no real cure for that either in feng shui. Um, you could move the front door to the other side, but it's still not a great place uh, to be. So normally uh, moving <laughs> is the only answer, unfortunately. Sell up, move, uh, time to move on. 
But with regards to practice, we don't want that. We don't want the rear of the body, the kidneys, facing out to the ocean because it can deplete it. And I've, I have done that because I've ignored it and I've practiced there when you stand up and your back gives a click and your knees feel a bit achy and actually, yeah, it's drawn, drawn away from the kidneys a little bit. So that's one of the rules. They also don't like practice at the top of waterfalls. That's another thing. So I used to teach somewhere in the UK. I think it was the largest single fall waterfall in the UK was there. It was a little druid place, um, very old druid place, and it was a, a circle of mountains with a yurt in the middle. I taught in the yurt and it had a waterfall outside the yurt. And you could climb up the waterfall, very, very beautiful, very, very scenic. Everyone loved training there except me. Everyone else loved training at this place, but not me, because after five days of being in the yurt, it fucking stank. Five days of sweating people in a hot tent was not brilliant. And I'm really funny about smells, so I didn't like being there, so we moved on. But at the time, it was great, because I used to take people to the waterfall. But at the top of the waterfall was a bad place to practice, because it pulls energy away. The water actually draws chi out of the body. But at the bottom of the waterfall is a really good place to practice, because it actually pulls energy towards you. So seating at the bottom of the waterfall is very good. And you can see this, right? Like lots of traditions like to meditate under waterfalls, or stand under waterfalls, or be under the bottom of water, because they're receiving that energy, but they don't sit at the top, usually. The only time that I have large bodies of water behind me when I'm in seated practice is for promotional photos. That's it. So you know all those promotional photos you might see run by a large body of water with my back to it? It's taken for the photo. Yeah, there's the, the video of the whooshing exercises just for the video. <laughs> I wouldn't really practice that. So the large body of water, just because it looks nice, you know, you avoid that. So that's the main one they avoid. The other one they don't like is for you to practice with nothing behind you. So if you are outdoors and you are on uneven ground, if there's a hill, normally you put the hill behind you is the idea to support the kidneys, but that's more minor than anything else. Most of the other spatial stuff are really just common sense. So practicing around trees is considered positive, not because you gain energy off the trees, but because there is a, something that's given off by the trees that just harmonizes the health of your body a little bit. Um, you generally avoid practicing around very, very um, technological or, or mechanical places, power plants and things like that. But most of these are just really, really obvious um, places with regards to where to practice, yeah, uh, or as much as anything. So if you start to get deeper into this, then something there are something called dragon lines, long by, that run through the ground. And you think of like you can think of them like channels like the meridians of the earth, if you like. And there are ways of finding these lines, uh, finding these dragon lines. I'll let you into a little clue. They're not on sacred sites. That's the first thing to understand with, with these lines, ley lines, dragon lines, where they're not on sacred sites. They were on sacred sites when the sacred sites were built, but they move, they shift. Every few years, probably a lot of years, then everything just gradually moves. So you probably won't notice a, a, a line, if you find a line, you probably won't find it moving over the course of your life. You probably won't notice. Maybe 80 years, you might notice it shift a few feet or something. But over the course of hundreds of years, the, the lines move. So in the UK, we have a very famous site called Stonehenge. And uh, it's basically a circle of stones that looks impressive in photos, looks impressive on video. And when you go to visit it, you go, oh, it's a pile of stones, or I do, because I'm a complete heathen. A bit like the White House. So I, 
the White House I've always seen in movies, and it always looks really impressive right before the aliens blow it up or the terrorists knock a wall down or whatever they do. And the White House always looks huge. And then when I went to see the White House, I realized it was camera angles. Actually, the White House is tiny. It's like a little place. I mean, it's bigger than my house, but um, you know, it's for you know, the leader of America, I thought it was pretty unimpressive, the White House. And Stonehenge is the same. When you actually see it, it's a bit of a downer. So if you are planning on coming over to the UK, to visit Stonehenge, especially if you're an enthusiastic American, because there's lots of you, there's lots of enthusiastic Americans who want to see Stonehenge, don't bother. <laughs> That's my advice. Just look at the photos, it's fine. But the other reason people come to Stonehenge is because supposedly there's a line that moves through it. And I remember as a teenager going up there, and I was probably in an altered state of consciousness myself, if I think back to what I was like as a teenager, uh, for various reasons. And I was up there at Stonehenge, and there was a, I don't know what they were, druids, Pagans, Wiccans, I'm not sure, take your pick, all up there and they were walking around Stonehenge like this, ooh, like feeling the line. And they were actually like groping the line, like they were following some invisible snake coming out of Stonehenge. And I remember looking at them thinking, way, that's weird, and B, I wish I could feel that. But then as time came on, I came to realize uh, they were wrong, actually, because Stonehenge is now locked off. You can't go in it. There's fences, it's like private property because druids kept going and getting naked on it or something, but you can't go up the Stonehenge. But it doesn't matter, because the line that went through Stonehenge is about a quarter of a mile <laughs> off to the side in a field, because it shifted like that, right? So most of those sacred sites aren't there. Uh, so you know you won't get much of a, much of a hit <laughs> off of there. But if you are able to find these lines, they're good places for practice. Because essentially, if you want to understand how they work, they're a bit like the, the sun, uh, the, what do you call it, the sunrise energy you know so what i mean is like yin and yang and harmonize but there's a boost of yang chi at those places so they can be very very good for harmonizing uh, the yang and, and raising it so this these lines are what are sought after so with regards to because i'm largely asking answering the questions people ask me where to practice when to practice and stuff like that with regards to time the first part of the podcast is really my advice with regards to where i would say just be sensible don't bury yourself in a hole in front of the combine harvester. Don't practice around large mechanical bodies, power plants, underneath power lines, or that can be quite fun sometimes, but away from those things. Try to avoid large bodies of water, and if you do have knowledge on how to find one of these lines, they can be very, very useful things to uh, practice um, upon, but it can be a bit tricky to find them if you don't know how to do so. Other than that, for a really long time, I don't think where you practice is really important. Some people say outdoors is better than indoors. I don't agree. I don't think so. I think outdoors in nature has a very, very um, harmonizing effect on your body. But some of you who know me know that I don't believe that you go out there and you get cheap by pulling it off the tree and I pull it off the stars and I pull it out of the earth and I pull it from the mountains over there. And uh, I don't, you don't get chi like that, not really. The, the kind of chi that's functional is actually produced inside your body. It's to do with the efficiency of energy production in you. So, and lo a lot of people don't agree with me on that, but keep studying, you'll find out that I'm right. That was arrogant, wasn't it? But when you're out there in nature, the way it helps you is more like tuning forks. So just because you're out in the environment, um, the air is better, the, the, the chi is healthier in the environment, you don't gain that chi but your chi will change a little bit, like the rhythm of your body, the, the vibration of your body can change to match the environment. So that harmonization with nature can be very, very good for your health, but it's not going to produce chi. Um, so with regards to production of energy or, or kind of 
engagement with the, the Shen and things like this, it can be done indoors. Like, it really doesn't matter. If you have a nice, clean space indoors, it can be better. Um, especially as sometimes when you're trying to work with some of this, it can be very, very distracting with even the wind and the air pressure changing on your skin can actually mean the sensitivity inside your body starts to go away because you're sitting there and you're trying to practice or you're doing your qigong and all you can feel is the little breezes on the, uh, on the hair on your arms and even if you think it's a breezeless day it can actually be very distracting and as soon as you practice indoors in a very close space you'd be surprised how much starts appearing to you like within the insides of the body and, and sometimes people don't like that and, and things, but um, you know, give it a try and you find actually you can get really good results indoors, especially if it's a very clean, simple environment. The other thing is people like to be outdoors is because of bare feet on the ground. Um, I advise against it um, because essentially, especially when your body is producing energy, if you have bare feet on the ground, your body is much like an electrical circuit um, as much as anything. And what happens if you produce energy bare feet can often earth it and it will go down through the ground and you'll lose that energy. So people who are practicing outdoors often are depleting themselves. Not depleting themselves unhealthily, but like it's, like it's like practicing by the ocean. You know, you build that chi, the ocean pulls it. I practice outside in bare feet. I build that chi, the earth takes it, just takes it straight into the ground. This is why all of the Nagong traditions or the alchemy traditions at the building phase, which is a, a long phase of training, building the chi, they always do the same. They either get you to isolate yourself from the ground by raising yourself up, and you, they actually have little um, seated wooden areas, the old, that look like pallets, you know, the pallets that they use to move vegetables and things. You ha they have little legs on them, so it's almost like a little low table that they sit on to isolate themselves from the earth. Or they practice on an animal skin, because an animal skin, um, if, you, if you don't mind such things, uh, actually isolates from you from the earth. But if you are um, against all of that kind of stuff, it's easy, just get a yoga mat. Separate yourself from the floor with a yoga mat because that little isolation will stop you actually earthing that energy into the floor or wear shoes. And do you know, like when I teach Qigong, there's some things that people are very resistant to that they don't like. And, and it's really funny, actually. I'm always surprised by it. And one of them is that when I tell them to isolate themselves from the ground with a yoga mat or a pair of shoes just to separate, I get so much resistance from it. People get really het up because they want to they get, the, get in the earth and just absorb the world. It's like they're so disconnected from it, they, they need to get it. And I think that's great. If you want to walk around on the ground, go roll around in a compost heap. Really get that earth in you. Get it all in your face. Rub it in there. Get that mud. Stick it in your hair. Eat it. Do whatever you like. Engage with earth, but it's not going to help your Qigong practice. <laughs> just put shoes on. But at the same time, if you're really resistant to that, I'm, I'm not that worried. I don't mind. I normally say it once, and then I don't say it again. It's up to people whether they follow it or not. So with regards to uh, where to practice, I think those are probably the most important rules. There's a lot more to do with compass directions and things like that, but I think that's for another day. This is the basics of when and where to practice. Thank you ever so much. Sorry for my slouching and slobbing around on this strange uh, couch, but um, 